What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Look, I'm not a weightlifter. I'm Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And today we have the case of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, very well-known serial killer weirdo, and we're going to kind of break down his motivation for being one of the weirdest guys, I guess, that we're aware of in modern history. Real quick, we have a question from Claire in England. Uh, we also answered a question from her a week or two ago, and she says, you, Bill, you and Matt seem to gel well on the podcast, and do you think you would get along well in real life? So, I mean, <clears throat> I could answer, even though it was directed at you, um, you know, we're talking on the phone in these 15-minute blocks. We've never met each other in person, and for me... You know, I can't remember the last time I kind of met someone over the phone. You know, usually you have Zoom or something and you can pick up on physical cues and things like that, you know, body language. It was a bit challenging at first. If you listen to some of the earlier episodes, I, I guess it was hard for me to find a rhythm sometimes. But uh, but yeah, I think it'd be probably be easier, you know, to to get along in real life almost. What do you think? Yeah, I, it was a real challenge to meet somebody on the phone, talk to them, establish that trust between the two of us to do this together. And so I think it's much harder than if we had met in person and sat down and really did this. So I guess to answer your question is I think that we probably would get along because we are, you know, we're pretty straightforward guys. We, we talk similar in some ways. You're more laid back, a little bit more intense, uh, but. Yeah, I think we show well. I think in, in, in well, real life, you want to call it the, the life out there, I think that, yeah, we would get along. And um, hopefully if I get transferred to a prison down south, that we will actually meet in person. He'll come to see me or something. And, uh, yeah, and we just, uh, you know, become good friends because I, I consider Matt my friend. And uh, and I think what we're doing right here is, is pretty good. And, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully that'll happen. So we appreciate the question, Claire. And if anyone else has any questions, go ahead and message us on Instagram or Facebook at Death Row Diaries and keep the questions coming. Also, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, write a brief review and tell a friend about the show. We do appreciate that. So... 
John Wayne Gacy. I guess he's like the killer clown of Chicago. He ruined clowns for everybody, I think. Where should we start with this guy? He had he had an abusive father, right? So I'm, I guess that's something that most people would bring up when we're talking about the makeup of this guy. Sure. And, and here we go with the same trajectory that most of these psychiatrists they bring in or profilers come in. They, and they lock on to this fact that he had an abusive father. Look, I get it. And, and I sympathize with the child that was John Wayne Gacy. His father was an alcoholic. He, he belittled him. He physically abused him. Um, called him a sissy. You know, that happens a lot. And I'm not going to say that that's the normal for a regular father-son relationship. And it should not be taken as a uh, picture-perfect relationship because it's not normal. But it happened a lot, especially in the 50s, 60s, and earlier times where we didn't have a lot of this interest in relations between fathers and sons, mothers and sons. So it was, it is not normal, but it was more commonplace than you would imagine. Um, and look, the father was a, a World War II vet. You know, he probably didn't have the best type of examples of how to become a father, how to be nurturing, how to be emotional. how to be emotionally supportive to his child. But that he became a serial killer just goes to that same uh, you know, profile that I've been speaking about is that serial killers are born that way. They're wired a certain way. That this guy receives some abuse from his father. If it would happen to you, Matt, or to 99.999% of the listeners, they would not have become serial killers. If that were the case, we'd have three, 400,000 serial killers running around in every state because there are at least that many fathers that abuse their kids. You have 60 seconds remaining. Not that it's right, but it happens a lot more than you think. So I'm going to right here discard that whole premise that because he had an abusive father and his mother wasn't as you know, nurturing as it should be that he turned into a serial killer because this guy was intelligent and which kind of goes to that whole thing that serial killers are born that way and he had these appetites to begin with. It just took the right situation to allow it to flower. I'll be back. Hey, man. Yeah, but this still could have, you know, fostered some resentment and and made him really bitter you know to the point that i don't know like you said it probably would have happened anyway but this uh he's he's a chubby kid he has some kind of like respiratory problems so he can't participate in sports and he's homosexual i don't know if his father can tell that and you know that's a terrible thing but I'm I'm picturing his father and I'm assuming that probably wasn't cool with him and you know he does badly in school like I think he's kind of dumb and just like everything he it it just seems like he's 
this disappointment. Well, yeah, he's disappointed to his father. It's interesting you brought that subject up because it comes to the second part of my analysis of this guy. So, yeah, that his father abused him did not make him into a serial killer. I don't care what expert you bring in to tell me differently. He's wrong, okay? What his father's abuse did do to him, it gave him tools. Because from a very early age, John Wayne Gacy realized that he had to become a performer for his father. He had to perform for him. Not as a clown, but as in everyday life. He had to do certain things to meet his father's approval. He had to do certain things in school to to meet his father's approval. These are the traits of the kid that's becoming a performer. And later on in his career as a serial killer, it shows up. He becomes a performer in life. And everything he does, it's a performance for him. And let me break down what a performer means. It doesn't mean that he is a guy who performs in a theater. But to him, life in itself is a theater. And that's what he's doing. He's performing. If you notice, through his childhood, yeah, he couldn't participate in sport. He could not... Um, attend school. That's why he had poor grades. It wasn't because he was dumb. He's not a genius. He's of average intelligence. What propels him forward is his ability to perform and fool people, which turn him into a first-rate manipulator later in his life. So the way I read it, and I don't know, because this just seems like a very base-level psychological evaluation, but you know, his dad was cruel to him, called him a loser constantly. And as he grows up, he becomes really ambitious as an adult, I think. I mean, it's not like the most ambitious guy I've ever seen, but he clearly wants to make something of himself. And I'm wondering if that's just to validate himself to his dad. Well, it could be like that, sure. You know, he's he's been called a loser by his father, a sissy, all these things. Obviously, he has an attraction to men. So, you know, he he hides who he really is. Um, he does get these minimal jobs at first, but you can tell as soon as you set him into a path that he understands, he begins to excel. Um, he becomes a, a precinct captain for a Demo- uh, Democratic Party candidate. Uh, he begins to work at a mortuary. That really is take to his real liking. But then he turns Western, uh, Northwestern Business School. And he graduates in 1963. Funny enough, he graduates from college, but he doesn't have a high school diploma. So here it is. You see this guy, he's an overachiever at whatever he does. And yeah, he wasn't a NASA scientist. He wasn't a freaking doctor. But for the positions you put it in, he always excelled. He becomes a manager and a trainee for a shoe company. And he's promoted to manager that probably immediately. And he becomes a, a member of the Jay-Z's. It's, it's, a, it's an organization in, in Chicago. And he, right there, he begins this, he shows a bit of himself. He invites employees over to his home tries to get them drunk. He makes advances on them. He tries to oral copulate one of them. But see, what he's doing here is he's actually 
what everybody talks about that serial killers learn and their MO becomes more refined. They become better. They practice at what they do. They fantasize what they do. John Gacy is a classic organized killer because everything he's doing is to hone that particular skill, which ultimately is to kill. And that's what he's doing. He's learning how to lure people into his home. He's learning how and what works better, chloroform, drugs in the drink, wine. He gives them weed. But he's just learning his traits. That's what sets him apart. That's what makes serial so unique. Because they don't, they're not just satisfied with getting the person. It's the ultimate rush. Now, he makes excuses, Matt. He, he tells the, everybody what he wants them to believe because he likes to control the narrative. He'll tell them, this, look, this is the reason why I kill. Most of the things that people know about John Gacy is because John Gacy gave them that information because no one had any idea that a serial killer was around killing. They gave him the killer clown name after he was arrested. I had no idea that this guy was a serial killer. So he had no, no name. It, it all happened later. And of course, he was the one that, that provided this information. I wonder if he, through trial and error, figured this out or if he made a calculated decision. Because something I noticed, which I think is pretty obvious, that he gets into these organizations. He's involved in politics. <clears throat> He's like entertaining at parties. He starts managing these three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants that his wife's father owns. And so what's at the Kentucky Fried Chicken? You know, there are a bunch of teenage boys, you know, are employed there. And just everything he does, he's getting into clubs. This JC organization is kind of what I imagine a lot of those male fraternities are, which is a lot of uh, playing grab ass and trying to bang each other's wives. Um, but I'm just wondering... If my long-winded question, you know, is this a strategy or does he just kind of mm, gravitate toward places where there's a lot of potential, I guess, potential victims just because it's a social environment or, you know what I mean? It's not a solitary job and there's just more people around. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's exactly what he's doing. Look, he, like a spider, gravitates to where there's more flies. And for him... He's a social butterfly. He likes the interaction with people. But he likes it so much because of the end results. It's gonna, the dividends are that he's gonna be around young men, the sons of JC organizers. At, at KFC, the employees usually are young people, boys and girls, but young. They're usually high school, they're trying to get jobs, they wanna work, they buy their car. So he's in this environment, and most of his employees that are working for him later say that, look, he would come over, he was the cool guy, he'd say, hey, let's, let's take a break today, let's not work, let's go to the pond, here, let's smoke some pot together, let's drink. What he's doing is he's testing the waters to see how far he can take this without someone telling on him. He doesn't know yet how, he, he's, he's basically in the dark, he's really trying to figure out who he is completely. Look, that he's bisexual, there's no doubt in my mind. You know, he has a wife, he has, he has two uh, children from her, and, but he's also very attracted to younger men, boys actually. And 
He doesn't know what to do with this stuff. A number of times he brings these kids over and when he tries something on them, a sexual advance, if they get very serious and, and rebuff his advances, he plays it off as a joke. That's him very nervously, tentatively trying to reach out and grasp who he really is and what he wants. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and all these activities that he's doing, include and and his job as well. You know, he's managing these young kids. They've maybe never had a job. You know, he's doing politics and entertainment for parties. They're all kind of positions where he's trying to grasp at some power. I mean, I don't think anyone worships birthday clowns, but you know what I mean. He's he, he he's gravitating towards things that give him some status and that allows him to manipulate you know young naive people let's call and your telephone yes and, and, and you're right look by 1965 this guy is named the vice president of the springfield jaycees he's named the third most outstanding jaycee in the state of illinois he is a performer and he's very popular everyone that they interviewed that wasn't a victim of his had nothing but good things to say about this guy. Hey, he's the guy that takes his shirt off his back and gives you. He's the guy that if you call, he'll come and help you. He's the guy in the rain that'll come pick you up if you don't have any. He was always performing because he wanted everyone to see the mask that he was wearing. He wanted everyone to see him as an outstanding citizen, but it was just a mask. And that's exactly what he does. By 1968, He's getting really into the involvement of the Jaycees, and he realizes that these people are under porn, some of them, they're into wife-swapping, prostitution, and he makes a very bold move. He meets a 15-year-old boy named Donald, and he basically, for lack of a better term, molests him and rapes him. And... Then he begins to try and blackmail him to performing sexual acts on him. Um, you know, he also slept with Gacy's wife. The boy did. And the boy at some point just tells his father, and this is where things kind of things kind of change because he is arrested on the word of this young man who accused him of lewd acts and sodomy and you know another kid comes forward too and says look he also tried it on me but suddenly John Casey sees a perfect opportunity to be the performer and he calls upon his droves of people that will back him up he has everybody convinced that these kids made this thing up and he plays a classic theme which is I am the victim here and how I know I'm the victim well, Donald's father is a competitor of mine in the Jay-Z's. He wants my position. So therefore, he got his son to lie about this. And he has just about everybody convinced of this. All the Jay's are supporting him. But of course, ultimately, he is convicted and sent to prison, where John Gacy does what I've been saying all along. He becomes the perfect model prisoner and a performer. He becomes the head cook within a couple months, and from there, he becomes a member of the Jay-Z's, the, the, the 
the attendance goes up from like 50 members to like 700 members in six months. You know, the prison loves him. The parole board is nuts about this guy. They let him out in 18 months. It's incredible what he's able to do because he's a classic performer. Yeah, he got sentenced to 10 years for molesting this kid or, or raping him, however you want to put it. But yeah, he gets out in 18 months. Incredible, right? Yeah. I can't even believe it. 18 months for the, for the rape of a child. And then they call back. Yeah, so when I was doing a little research on this, I watched some interviews that Gacy did from prison, which he would go on to do a lot of them, and we'll talk about that later. I wasn't getting the magnetic personality of this, but when I'm hearing this, like, he he got everyone to believe a conspiracy that, you know, he was being set up, uh, which just, I, I don't know, like, that happens, but you gotta be weary of believing conspiracies usually, and, like, in the prison, he got them to put in, like, miniature golf in the yard, like, so people like this guy or at least they, they trust him, but I just wasn't reading that from watching him. Of course, you know, he, he may have been taken down a peg, given that he's sitting on death row when he's giving these interviews, but I just, I don't get it. Well, look, he's a non-threatening-looking guy. He's not six foot four, 270 pounds, he's not tattoos, he doesn't have a full Manchu. He doesn't look like a guy that you should be afraid of. He's a chubby little guy that is about five foot eight, and look, he doesn't look threatening. Of course he is, but it's how he does it. It's not like he overpowers these kids, because there was a kid that he tried to use this handcuff trick that he's been very famous for, the handcuff trick. And the kid got out of it and basically punched him in the face, took the cuffs off himself, put them on him. And that was basically it. I mean, John Gacy just walked away from the situation. But look, this guy convinces the parole board to let him out for 18 months. And then after that, he gets out, and he has several arrests for sexual assault right after he's, he's released, within five months. But the parole board didn't know about it. So within a few more months... He gets off of parole and his record is automatically sealed because back then that's what they did. Now this guy is, now he understands what he has to do. And that is, he immediately marries another woman. I'm sure he has two daughters. And he puts up his own business. It's a construction business. And this business is perfect for luring young men. This is, it's the performance. It's part of the whole theatrical thing that this guy does. And he did it when he got arrested. When he finally was arrested, he knew the kind of attention he would draw. So he confesses. He gives them not only the blueprint of where the bodies are at, because by the way, this guy killed 33 people and 27 of them were buried under his house in a crawl space. He even got his own workers to dig the holes not knowing what he was doing. This guy was about manipulation, about control. It was a number of different things that got this guy off. But he confessed because it gets the police to like him. And that's what he wants. He wants people to like him. He tells them, he draws them a diagram, and it is to a letter where everybody is, is on the sheet of paper. 
So, and now, of course, you said you, you saw some interviews, and he's playing the conspiracy. Well, let's back up a little bit. He already confessed to it. Where does the conspiracy come from? A performer normally goes to his best hat after he's played the other ones out. And that is sympathy for only one person he understands, himself. So he plays his master manipulating, I was manipulated, I was, uh, I was set up, it's a conspiracy. But that stuff doesn't fly because he already admitted to everything. You know, and I, like I explained to you before, all these murders, he is the one telling them how it happened and why it happened. First of all, he tries to explain himself. And here's a good one for you guys. He says that the first time he decided to kill was because of an experience he had in the mortuary where he was with one of the dead bodies, a young teenager, and it got him very aroused and he had an orgasm next to the corpse. He's making excuses for what he's doing. Then he says his first victim was not on purpose. That the person he let him stay at the house, and when he woke up in the morning, the kid was at the door with a knife in his hand and tried to attack him. So he had to subdue him, and he ended up stabbing him to death, and that's when he really realized how aroused he got when the person was dead. The thrill was death. That's an excuse. That's giving people a reason they can understand to lessen somehow what he's doing. And only psychotic so that's really interesting so you're saying his desire for acceptance and to be liked led him to confess but then once he's on death row and you know i guess the cops obviously moved on and don't really care never did they just wanted the confession so now he's just trying to be accepted by the general public by claiming that he's innocent of these murders that he obviously did they were buried under his house and he confessed to them in detail so it's it's just all about him wanting to be liked or accepted is what you're saying yeah it was part of the performance he wanted people to remember him he wanted to be part of the spotlight it's what narcissistic egotistical you know these killer clowns do and not no pun intended but that's what these guys do if there's no spotlight on them they, they kind of lose themselves, you know, so he becomes, and, and, uh, well, he does these little portrait drawings of himself as a killer clown, and people are, now are, in, are drawn to these drawings because it's what serial killers do. I mean, I, I'm surrounded by it here on death row, and this is what they do. There, there are these groups, murder memorabilia, and a bunch of all these, these weird people that are groupies for these serial killers. And John Wayne Gacy, because of the, the subject matter, which he drew himself as Pogo the Clown, uh, people in that arena bought his work and were very interested in his work. Now, please don't confuse this with him being an artist. He is not an artist, okay? He's not. He's a clown that draws some dumb portraits of himself, and he gets some people interested because of what he did. He is a, an act. So people are interested because he's a serial killer. They're not interested because it's art, because it's not. And he got some pretty significant people to really pay crazy amount of money. I think one of his paintings went for $40,000. And one of them was bought by a pretty famous person that most of the listeners probably will recognize, and that's Dave Navarro, who is the, or was the, 
lead guitarist of Jane's Addiction and then toured with the Red Hot Chili Peppers as their lead guitarist. And uh, funny story, it's not funny, but he bought one of the Killer Clown portraits from John Wayne Gacy. And tragically, Dave Navarro's mother and her one of her friends were murdered by a guy here on death row by the name of John Riccardi. And I met Dave Navarro in the visiting room while he came to visit a guy responsible for the murder of his mother. Um, yeah, a real awkward situation, but I met him here. Hmm. So, yeah, these are not really sophisticated paintings or drawings. So what what is this about? Is he just doing the thing that all these serial killers do? Is he's basking in whatever attention he's got out of this, which is pretty substantial actually. I mean, this was a this was a really big a big thing in the media when it happened. Yeah, look, serial killers are not in any way feel sympathy, sympathy for anybody they've killed. Serial killers do not think that way. Anybody who thinks so, well you're an idiot, okay? Serial killers are all about themselves, the gratification, whether it be psychological or sexual, that they strive for, and it's what gets them off. This is, you know, when I talk about what, you know, a killer can kill for a certain reason, but it's what he does that sets him apart, it's what gets him off. With him, it was the that, it was the gratification of what he was doing, the control factor, the sexual gratification, it all took a huge part of what he did. It's the same in prison. The drawings of him as a clown and all these things that he did was to get attention, to kind of glorify what he, what he did and continue to glorify it well past the time of the crimes. And he was successful. He got a lot of people to fight over these silly drawings that he did and buy them. And that made him feel very much important. He highlighted that by doing all these jail interviews. It's one of the reasons, Matt, that the CDCR here in California does not allow prisoners on death row to do interviews in media. Yeah, you could probably say that here on this farm doing sort of the same thing in a way. Well, I believe this more as a public service rather than anything else, but they don't allow cameras to film me while I'm doing one of these interviews or something. And it's for that reason. Because California realized that it glorifies these guys. And actually, one of the events that took place was a guy by the name of Walker. He went on Inside Edition, he did an interview, and the next day he killed himself, which brought a huge amount of media attention to that spotlight. And it kind of glorified what he did. It got him in the media, and he went out in what they call a blaze of glory. John Wayne Gacy was doing basically the same thing. Right. I wonder how he fared on death row. I, I'm wondering if you might be able to offer any insight, because, you know, he did go to jail. He, he went to, I don't know, a minimum security-type prison for raping a boy, and became, like, the most popular guy, a real chum at that place. So, do you have any information or anything on that? Well, John Wayne Gacy was in death row, and, of course, um, Illinois. So, it's a little bit different in here, but because he was a serial killer, I am sure that he was in protective custody. And I am sure that there are guys there that would love to have gotten to him. 
just like there's guys here that would love to get a hold of some of the guys that are serial killers here as well. That That is a, a basic prison rule. If you have a chance and you got a serial killer on your site, you try and kill them. That's just no other buts about it. And that's why they put these guys on those protective custody yards. Now, there are serial killers in the past that have tried to go out to a regular yard. Richard Ramirez is a perfect example. I'm here to tell you that he didn't last out there 11 minutes where someone stuck something in his, in, his, in his chest. And he thought it may have been a mistaken identity. And he goes out there 10 days later saying, no, no, it, it, it wasn't me they were trying to get. And they stabbed him again. Luckily for him, the clown that stabbed him didn't know what he was doing. Had he been stabbed by a real convict, he never would have lived to that. But he would have learned really quickly never to come out again. We've talked about this before. Look at um, Dahmer. Dahmer tried to go to a mainline. Well, he did go. It just took him a, a little bit more time for someone to kill him. But that's the basic rule. You see a serial killer, you kill a serial killer. So going back slightly, I think we glossed over it a little bit because I think people are pretty familiar with Gacy, but his M.O. was he would get these teenage boys to come to his house where his construction business is based out of, apply for a laboring job like teenagers do, and then he would smoke weed or drink with them and kill them and then bury them or just kind of cover them up and place them in his crawl space. Uh, you think, how could his wife not have seen something with like 30, I mean, how many kids did he kill in his house? Like 25 or 33. Okay. He killed them all there. Yeah, so how does that happen? Well, as we've talked before, well, he he wasn't married at the time. He did kill with his second wife because his first wife divorced him after he was convicted of the molestation of Donald Forsen who had been supposedly 10 years ago, 18 months. His second wife, according to him, he killed three times during their... And as I say, it's not that difficult to do something like this when you're always working and there's a, there's a way of getting, you know, you can make excuses. But his wife did say that she found walls in the house and she'd see boys come over. She didn't know what was going on. And ultimately, she did divorce him as well. But he's, let me call it back, he's kind of cut off. So it's not that difficult to do, but by the time that he went on his spree, which he killed about 30 kids, it was after he was divorced. He was basically by himself in his home. You know, he had that construction business, but that's not where he got most of the kids. He picked them up at bus stops, bars. He lured them into the house with promises of money for sex, photographs, just to get high, to drink. Um, sometimes he would just kidnap the kids in his car and he'd take them to his house. So this guy was prolific in what he did and he perfected his technique, his MO. He perfected it. It's what they do. It, the MO begins to change with time. It gets better and better. He got to the point that he was really was a joke to him. He would do the cuff trip. He, he'd put on these cuffs and then he would take them off and show the kid and the kid's, wow, how'd you do that? Well, he didn't know that he had a, a key in his hand and he'd get the kid to put them on. Once the kid put them on, he'd last as a trick to have the key. Then he would you know, chloroform them and that's where the, the torture, you know, he also tortured them. He burnt them with cigars. He, uh, I think he hit him with a, with a, uh, with a rope, with a, a hammer handle at the back of him. He just twisted it so the person would go into convulsions and, and, and 
you know, die sometimes. He'd bring them back with resuscitate them with CPR so he could do it over again. Uh, one of the things he'd do, he'd, he'd mount them like a horse and, and make them whine. He really belittled his um and psychologically tortured them. So this wasn't just a guy who killed them for sex. He enjoyed the torture and all the things he did. Uh, and he could because he was in a ranch-style home. There was nobody there. And the biggest trophy for him was to actually bury the kids under his home. 27 kids were bur- buried there. The reason he stopped, and one of them in the backyard, the reason he stopped was because he had no more room. So he threw the other ones in the river. This guy was a piece of work. When I see guys like him, you know, that volunteer for political causes that are just really involved in the community and they have this great reputation with the chamber of commerce and they're just, they're just doing all these public things like that. I just figure, all right, this guy is just self-interested. And when he's found in a motel room with a prostitute, I am not shocked and kind of expect it. However, that seems really unfair because I know there's a lot of people out there that are are dads and whatnot, and they're just doing this stuff because they care about their community. But uh, I'm wondering if it was kind of a different time or something. I I don't know. That's that's just my kind of feeling about guys like that, and it's probably not fair. But what do you think about that? Yeah, it's sort of not fair, and we normally have a knee-jerk reaction to situations like that. It's responsive to what we see. We see a serial killer do these things, and immediately we jump to conclusions and start looking at politicians and, and Boy Scout guys and priests and everything. Look, there's a small number of people that do this. Obviously, we, we see it with John Gacy, we see it with priests, we see it with different people. You can't judge every person by the acts of a different person. However, you know, there are these signs that I constantly look for in people when I'm basically judging a person or at least reading them. My life depends on it. And I think it's one of the reasons when we sign off, I always say, you know, be aware of your surroundings. I don't say it because it's a cliche or because it sounds good and our, and our producers telling us, because, hey, we don't have a producer. It's just me and Matt here. The reason I say that is because you should be watching everyone, not with a suspicious eye of them being serial killers, but there are signs. With him, the big sign was he's arrested for molestation. Not of one boy, but two of them. And, you know, it's, it's this, the things, the, the small signals that this is something bigger. If a person's arrested for molesting a child, that is not something they outgrow. This is something they don't just stop doing. We should have some type of yeah, you know, it's hard for me to say what we should do here because if you guys have been listening to me long enough, you know how I feel about child molesters, okay? So, but there has to be some kind of system where that person, yeah, it's one mistake, I don't care. That person should be taken out, there should be no contact with children, they just don't, you have to be that harsh when it comes to these clowns. You can't judge every politician, but if he gets caught doing this, if he's in a hotel room with a prostitute, look, I'm not going to look too much on it. A lot of guys use sexual favors or whatever from sex workers. I get it. But if it's a child, now we got a problem. And that person should be judged differently. This guy, Casey, had I been around him, 
I would have picked up the signals. You can't hide it completely. The kids at the house late at night. The kids come to his apartment and they disappear. No one sees them again. He's constantly being interviewed by police about a kid at his job that disappeared. Those are red flags. And this is the reason I said some law enforcement, well, most law enforcement, can't do the job of hunting serial killers is because they're probably good men. They have wives, they have sons, they have daughters. They don't think this way. There should be a special unit of just, I don't know, other convicts that can tell you where these guys are at and what they're doing. Because there's no way that you can track these guys unless you've been around them and know what the hell you're talking about. And I'm sorry, these profilers and stuff that you see the FBI do and have these movie shows, crap. Those guys don't catch anybody. They tell us he must be a white guy. He's like 28, 33. He must not love his mother. He probably lives with his father. That stuff are just generalizations. There's never been a profile in the history of mankind is set up. The guy you're looking for is named Richard Ramirez, and he lives. That's just good detective work. Unless you bring in a guy who has the kind of experience in watching these guys and can tell you, you've got to watch that guy right there. Or better yet, let's just snatch that guy up and let's get him to talk because he's done something. So he in prison, you know, he's suspected of all these other murders for obvious reasons, and he most certainly did kill more teenagers. The interviews I saw with them in the media, he's indignant. He's now claiming he's innocent and he's he's kind of smug. Um and he's just he's but it's a pretty obvious veneer like at one point he says well when i saw the kid i mean i never saw him uh, it, like he just catches himself and he's lying and then he tells the interviewer well strike that as though he's in control of the situation <laughs> and it's just it's awkward but the the indignant aspect i was like man the balls on this guy because you know he's guilty and and he's acting like he's running the show here and I guess that's called being sociopathic or narcissistic, but um, any thoughts on why he's behaving this way? Yeah, well, I mean, you've given him everything he wants, right? You think about it. You've made him the center of attention. You have national media coming to see you. And if he, if he does an Oscar-winning performance that's completely innocent, it doesn't really accomplish his goal. His goal is to keep you watching. So those little slip-ups and those things he says, his little smiles and the little, well, you know, I could have possibly done that. And, you know, clowns get away with murder. And all these things he says make people believe, well, he probably is guilty. But it's the rubber neck effect. You can't not stop from looking at the accident. And this guy's a freaking accident. And of course, you get the media people are, are nuts to go see this guy because they think they're going to get some nugget out of this guy. But all they're doing is feeding the ego. All they're doing is giving this guy what he wants. And of course, he succeeds. So do you think he should be able, people in that position should be able to give like unlimited interviews? Or is it not worth it if they don't have anything, I mean, any information or anything? In my opinion... And this is me talking as a father and as a man. If you have a guy who's a serial killer, the first thing you do is 
No cameras in the, in, the, in the courtroom. No media whatsoever. His name is erased from everything. And when he's convicted, he, look, forget, I, I get the whole human rights thing, but when you do that kind of stuff and you kill 30 kids, you lose your rights to be a human. I mean, you're no longer a human being. So you're treated like one. No media, no mail, no phone calls, nothing. Look, I know I sound kind of harsh, but I watch these guys. I watch them trade photographs on the yard of little boys. I watch them do these things in these yards about the women they've killed. And they, they pass out uh, uh, freaking uh, like baseball cards of their victims. And they have their picture in the back of it, and they sign them. Look, if you stopped all that stuff, you would stop. And I know there's a lot of people out there they're going to say, oh, my God, how could he be saying this? You know, and they're liberals, and they're left, you know, the whole lefty, and they're human rights. Look, I get it. But in some cases, one out of every few million that become these monsters, in my opinion, they lose their rights to be anybody. And look, as far as I'm concerned, you can take it behind the courthouse as soon as they're convicted, and that's it. End of story. We don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. We don't have to worry about them getting out. You committed a crime against a child. Sexual or killing. You never get out. You never get out. And look, call me a barbarian away, but sometimes to deal with barbaric things, you have to be barbaric in your thoughts. And I know that's not the most popular way of doing things. I'm not trying to be hard on crime. I'm talking about one guy out of every 20 million people that turns into this guy. Because we don't have that many serial killers. We have very few of them. There are a couple hundred out of, what, seven billion people in the world? We can afford to be not so nice, but we can afford to divert from the Constitution a little bit when it comes to these guys. Look, I'm just saying. So Gacy is 52 years old. He's exhausted his appeals. This is 1994. He is in Crest Hill or the Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois. And he, for his last meal, he gets a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, a dozen fried shrimp, French fries, strawberries, and a Diet Coke. I would maybe just go with the regular at that point. Uh, I thought this was weird because he managed the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and so kind of like all day for a long period of his life, he's dumping these... uh these these chicken parts into the fryer and you know i worked at a bar and i had to sometimes work the fryer and uh i can't eat like buffalo wings anymore and it just uh i thought it was weird that he still liked the kentucky fried chicken i think it had nothing to do with kfc i think it had to do with everything that people will be talking about this that his last meal was kfc and he worked for kfc or he managed them i think it's part of the performance yeah, so he's executed. They kind of botched the process, and he was kind of uh, in distress for about 18 minutes. But he finally died. Before that, he was claiming he was innocent. He was claiming to be the victim of some conspiracy on the part of the government. His last words were, kiss my ass. All right, great. Uh, so he's gone. Is his legacy that he ruined clowns? Because was there not a... a kind of belief that clowns were creepy before this or did he really just ruin clowns for everyone <laughs> that's a good question i don't think that he ruined clowns for but i mean he was a creepy freaking clown but look have you seen it from stephen king um you know the whole he took the creepy clown thing to a whole different level so um yeah john gacy didn't do jack for clowns he didn't but you know there's kids that are afraid of clowns 
Yeah, well, I'm seeing here that the it the book uh, it by Stephen King that the movies were based on was written in 1986. I'm wondering if King got any inspiration, for lack of a better word, out of Gacy. Hey, you never know. Yeah, you never know. Authors are you know they 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 pick subject matter from around themselves. And he did kill between 1972 and 78 or 74 and 78. Um, 72 and 78. So, yeah, there's a very good possibility, but, I mean, there's been other programs about creepy clowns, you know, insane clown, uh, clown posse, if you've seen that, you damn, those guys look like John Wayne Gacy, huh? All chubby white dudes. So who do you think's creepier on, I'll throw out a few, a few community guys. So you got a sports coach with no children, a scout leader, uh, or, you know, party entertainer, clown, and what else do we have in that category? I don't know. Uh, karaoke, karaoke DJ, and priest. Yeah, who's the worst of those guys? Oh my God, man. You got a real bunch of clowns there, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's wow. Hey, you got a dartboard? Just put their pictures in a dartboard. Just, you know, pick one. Yeah, those are all professions that make an eyebrow rise. I mean, I don't know the whole priest thing, uh, you know, the coach, no kids. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Look, I, I would be, <laughs> look, we're being a little irresponsible here. There's a lot of coaches that coach high school become NFL coaches and they're, they're good guys. So, you know, please take this a grain of salt. Matt and I are playing. We're joshing around a little bit here. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to take a look at those guys. There's a couple guys here that were scout masters that are serial killers. So, yeah, um, not a good uh, bunch to pick from. Well, I don't know. I guess that's that's it on John Gacy. Anything to say in closing? Yeah, only this. <laughs> if you hire a clown to work your party, be sure to check his background, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and, well, I mean, he could have actually been if he was just a clown. You know, because his face is covered up. Like, there was this one killer that told women he was a goalie in the NHL. And he would, like, go to bars with them. And they were, like, playing the highlights on the TV. And he's like, hey, that's me. Look at me saving that shot. You know, because they're in the mask. And, you know, now you could just Google it. But, you know, just things where you cover your face if you're an aspiring killer. Probably not, uh, not a bad way to go. But now you've made me think about something like that, and I just don't like it. So, uh, yeah, we should probably wrap it up. So, <laughs> I've been Matt Ralston. Yeah. And I'm William Nagara. Please be aware of your surroundings. There could be a creepy clown lurking in your background.